Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. So before I introduce our speaker today, it's our tradition to go around the room and say our names. If I may, I'll begin with Roy. John. My name is Michael. I'm Harvey. Jason. Tom. Oh, my name is Harley. Jose. Larry. I'm Richard. <coughs> I'm Tim. My name's David. I'm Michael. Alfredo. I'm Al. Paul. I'm Clint. Jesse. John. My name is Cass. I'm George. Peter. Risha. I'm David. I'm Brad. My name's Tom. I'm Jim. I'm Sean Derek. Tom. My name's Ray. My name's Benjamin. Okay. <clears throat> Benjamin Young had uh, began meditation as part of his spiritual practice when he was in his early 20s. Over the last 44 years, he has studied many spiritual paths, pursued a number of meditation practices, led spiritual retreats, and has given spiritual talks. Benjamin traveled to India for two months in 2001, where he and a close friend took monk's vows. He has been practicing a Buddhist form of meditation called Anapanasati, mindfulness of the in and out breath for the past 20 years, and has assisted others in developing their spiritual practices. Welcome, Benjamin. Thank you. Always nice to be here. <laughs> you know, um, usually my talks um, go through an evolutionary process, and uh, that process is to begin, usually a couple of months out, thinking about what I might have to say. Usually what I say has nothing to do with what I think about. Um, but I think that's part of the nature of thought. <clears throat> so part of it's about picking a topic. And uh, I thought about this and decided that uh, perhaps what would be interesting to explore a bit would be um, um, free will except not just the will part, but more the free part, and what that means, and, and how we relate to it in our lives. Um, but before I begin, um, when I was in India, I went there specifically to be at a, a place where my teacher had lived. And uh, it was fortunate for me that my teacher basically died before I ever met him. Uh, it simplified things, because I never got attached to him, at least in a physical form. Um, I've been reading some of his writings recently, and, and I'm going to quote some things that he said periodically, which uh, indirectly relate to the topic, but that I find significant from a spiritual practice. Um, to go back for a second, one of the things I do when I sit here is I look around uh, while people are meditating just to observe, and I'd like to make a suggestion, not that you need to follow it, but a suggestion. Um, I notice that most people's faces tend not to reflect happiness when they're meditating. And I found through experience that if you sort of lay that in as a foundation for your practice, that that gladdening effect has a profound impact on your meditation. Um, just something to think about. Um, positive note. Uh, something Ramana said, people see the world the perception implies the experience of a seer in the scene. The objects are alien to the seer. The seer is intimate, being the self. They do not, however, turn their attention to finding out the obvious seer, but run about analyzing the scene. The more the mind expands, the further it goes and renders self-realization more difficult and complicated. The man must directly see the seer 
and realize the self. So, and if you have comments while I'm talking, please feel free to contribute. Dialogues are much more interesting than monologues. Can you please reread that? Sure. People see the world. The perception implies the existence of a seer and the seen. The objects are alien to the seer. The seer is intimate, being the self. They do not, however, turn their attention to finding out the obvious seer, but rather about analyzing the scene. The more the mind expands, the further it goes and renders self-realization more difficult and complicated. The man must directly see the seer and realize the scene. Any comments? More than mind expands, define what expand means in that context. I think he's talking about the more we look outward into the world and accumulate information and uh, events and experiences, uh, that's the expansion process. Okay, because if you expand in a good way, I would get, that would make it closer to your realization, I would think. Okay. Yeah, so it's, that's, that's an internal expansion versus an external expansion. And that last sentence said, realize the... You mean the man must directly see the seer and realize the self? See the seer. Okay. Okay. Um, when I started thinking about uh, this talk, I was um, investigating um, science, current theories about um, um, how the universe formed, um, what it is, um, how it got here. And from a scientific standpoint, it's kind of an interesting investigation because there's not a lot of knowledge about it. There's a lot of hypothesis. Um, and I went back and looked at the history, uh, went back and let's just sort of establish a foundation for evolution. Um, how many people here have investigated classical physics, taken a physics course in college? Okay, so who's the father of that whole process? Mr. Newton? Good, good point to start with. Then along came a gentleman named Einstein who talked about relativity. How many people have any familiarity with relativity? And then along came a challenging aspect to Einstein which was uh, called quantum physics. So here, ha who has experience with quantum physics? Every day. <laughs> <laughs> and that created a problem because there was a, a, a difficulty in reconciling quantum physics with general relativity, which is Einstein. And the more recent uh, perspectives on that deal with something called string theory. So who has familiarity with string theory? Well, let's go back to the beginning for a moment because, um, interestingly enough, Newton was a very spiritual individual. Yet, the foundations he laid for science were really sort of contrary to spiritual perspective. Um, basically, if Newton were, was accurate in what he was saying, the entire universe sort of functions like a clock. Everything causes something else to happen that causes something else to happen. And that all of these things, if we had the ability, we should be able to determine. So looking at the universe, we should be able to go back and see how it started, and we should be able to go forward and see where it's going. Well, that's really very contradictory to a spiritual perspective, particularly a Christian spiritual perspective, which is what Newton held. So it's kind of interesting to think about a man who comes up with these wonderful theories but really can't apply them to an entire aspect of his life, which is his spiritual aspect. And that conflict is something that we really sort of inherited because that conflict has become very embedded in our culture. And it's kind of fascinating to look at, at how we sort of live with that. I mean, is the universe really predetermined? Does everything fall out based on the events that have already occurred? 
people think that's the case? Is there predestination? That's a spiritual aspect. I mean, this really ties deeply in with the whole perspective of free will. When we got into dealing with quantum physics, uh, there was a certain randomness introduced into the process. Um, everything wasn't necessarily based on absolute, it was based on probability. And probability gives us a little bit of wiggle room. Not a lot, but a little. So how does that impact us and as our culture changes and as these concepts of science become more embedded, how does that affect our lives? Well, let's go back for a second and take a look at what is free will. Okay, so any perspectives? Anybody like to take a shot at a definition of what free will is? Oh, come on. Bold. The ability for self-determination to change the events in your, the outcomes of your actions. Okay, and it's based on? It's based on, free will is based on what? Or you mean what I'm saying is based on what? No, I meant what is free will itself based on? The ability to choose, yeah. Okay, so... Your internal self being able to think and um, make decisions. So philosophically, one of the things that religion has traditionally differentiated humans from animals is based on free will, our ability to make choices that effectively we can sort of think through and decide exactly how we want to respond to them. So I dug out a definition because they always sort of give us a foundation. And the definition was a voluntary choice or decision or freedom of humans to make choices that are not determined by prior causes or by divine intervention. So if you don't, if one does not believe in God, um, that makes all, that makes free will sort of um, a de facto belief also, I think. Perhaps. Well, yeah, not necessarily. And I think that's really what we want to take a look at today. I mean, that was sort of my goal in the whole process. Um, because I think that our culture tends to promote the whole idea that we all have free will. You know, and um, you know, maybe they're just playing us a bit. <laughs> maybe there's not as much free as we think there is in free. So, I love stories. And this is kind of long, I apologize for that, but it's entertaining. And this is a true story. Uh, this is something that actually happened uh, in, in the late 60s. And I think it relates directly to free will. It's 1968, and in the Somerset town of Bridgewater, a company called Electron Utilization is facing a crisis. Donald Crowhurst, its owner, is in his mid-30s, married with four children. Electron utilization makes the electronic components for self-steering yacht equipment, and it is heading for the rocks. In the face of all his concerns about bankruptcy and the loss of social standing and damage to his family this would cause, Crowhurst's main form of respite is sailing. Only the previous year, Sir Francis Chichester became a national hero after his solo voyage around the world. This has made single-handed sailing and racing quite fashionable, and the Sunday Times has sponsored a competition, the Golden Globe Race. This is a single-handed yacht race around the world with a prize of 5,000 pounds. It seems to Crowhurst this might be the way out of his difficulties. He is a good, although not expert, sailor. If he were to enter the race, he might be able to get some sponsorship, as well as some publicity for his business. If he were to win, or even to finish well up the field, it might be enough to solve his problems. And so Crowhurst purchases a boat that he names Teagmouth Electron, Teagmouth after the port of departure, and Electron after his business. He manages to persuade people to sponsor him and to donate equipment and materials he will need on the voyage. He even acquires a press officer named Rodney Hallworth. The Golden Globe race has no starting line. The winner 
will the winner will be whoever takes the least time in their circumnavigation around Africa, past Australia, around Cape Horn, and back to England. People set out at different times, and whoever has the shortest elapsed time will win. However, there's a deadline by which competitors must start, and Crowhurst has left it late. Right up to the last minute, he's stuffing things into his unfinished boat. Allworth is busy feeding the press tidbits about how things are going as Crowhurst hurries around saying goodbye to his friends and family. Finally, on October 31st, he waves farewell to his wife and sails off. To begin with, he's very busy getting the boat organized and start starting work on the electronic <coughs> equipment. Tigmoth Electron is a trimaran and should be capable of sailing fast, at least before the wind. <coughs> However, it quickly becomes clear that because of the rush of meeting the starting deadline, the boat has a number of very worrying faults. Several of the safety features do not work. His self-steering gear is not functional, and some of the hatches are leaking. Then, as he sails south along the coast of Africa, he runs into some violent weather, and in, and in this very first storm, his boat fares badly. But eventually the weather calms and Crowhurst sits off the coast of Africa <coughs> contemplating the situation. He's trying to work out the chances of making it all the way around the world in this ill-prepared boat. If he cannot do it, where does that leave him? It leaves him with a business on the rocks and all kinds of expenses and difficulties. What is he to do? He's not going to gain any publicity by <coughs> sailing a little way down the coast of Africa and then limping out of the race. Crowhurst begins working on repairs and moves out of the main trade rest to avoid being run down by shipping. He records all this in the yacht's log, a record of position, progress, radio communications, and any notable events. When you, are, when you are on your own in the middle of the ocean, you have plenty of time to think. At some point, one of the ideas he plays with is producing another log. We don't quite know when it starts, and we don't know if, in the beginning, it was just a fantasy and a way of keeping himself amused. In any case, he begins writing an imaginary log, an account of what would have happened, where he would be if the boat had not been damaged, and if he carried on making the same rate of progress. Meanwhile, in the original log, he is drifting along, trying to put his boat back together, making little progress. Even if he did start off as a even if it did start off as a piece of wish fulfillment to help pass the time, at some point the new log in which he's doing very well takes a new meaning. He comes up with a plan to save his business and position. Instead of trying to go all the way around the world in his damaged boat, he will just waste time meandering around the South Atlantic. Then, when a suitable amount of time has passed, he can reappear in the Western Atlantic, head back to Britain, and come in somewhere down the field in the race. In this way, he will appear to do fairly well, and his press agent can make something of his finishing in a credible position. There's just one problem. All the competitors are supposed to make radio contact as they sail past Sydney, and Crowhurst will not be going within an ocean of Australia. With so much time on his hands, it isn't long before he thinks of a way around this conundrum. If there were something wrong with his power supply, he would be unable to make contact with Sydney. He promptly sent off a message He's having problems with this generator. People should not expect to hear from him for a long time. He will work on it, and maybe at some point he will be able to repair it, but he's not sure. After sending this message, he has time to kill, and now he's completely isolated. He cannot even use his radio. It is as if he has to die for a few months and then reemerge into the race at the right moment. Rodney Haworth has managed to interest the BBC and Crowhurst, so they gave him a film camera and a tape recorder. He films himself sitting on the boat, talking about how he is finding life, about his diet and fish and birds he has seen. He fills many hours in this way. He also spends a lot of time keeping his logs, not only where he is, but also where he would like to be. He needs to work out what would be reasonable progress all the way through his long hypothetical journey. He works hard on that, but still keeps his other logs starting, stating where he's actually doing. In the invented log, <coughs> he is passing the Cape of Good Hope, then crossing the Indian Ocean, heading for Australia. In the real log, he is in the South Atlantic going nowhere. Having committed himself to this deception, he has other worries. His boat has so many leaks and other faults that he can't be sure 
it will last several months. So he decides that it is a he decides that if he is to complete his voyage, he will have to put into a port somewhere and find supplies. With a few bits and pieces, he can do the work on the boat so that when the time comes, he can return to England. Eventually, he puts into the smallest fishing port he can find, Rio Salado in Argentina. He quickly acquires the things he needs and sets off again. This gives him another worry because one of the stipulations of the race is that it must be unassisted circumnavigation. If anyone were to find out that a small craft with an Englishman aboard had put into port, been given supplies, he would be disqualified. It would also prove to be thousand, he would also, it would also prove him to be thousands of miles away from where he's supposed to be. He still cannot use the radio because that would blow his cover. But gradually the months pass. He's still in the South Atlantic, but beginning to think about heading back to England. He's not used his radio for 11 weeks, it's time for him to make contact and find out what's happening in the race. When he does, he discovers from his press officer, Hallworth, that he has been tearing his hair out. Without any word from Crowhurst, with nothing to work with to feed the media, he had to improvise. He has painted Crowhurst <laughs> as the race dark horse, who before he lost radio contact was making very good time and who could well be up among the leaders. Worryingly for Crowhurst, it transpires that he is among the leaders. The weather, the strain, and the isolation has taken their toll on the other competitors, and out of the starters, there are now only four left. In addition to Crowhurst, there is Robin Knox Johnson, ex-Royal Navy, who is back in England, but his elapsed time is quite long. He started off early and went very steadily, and so far is the only person to complete the course. There's another Englishman, a naval officer called Nigel Tetley, who has made quite good time and is now most of the way back to England. Then there is the race leader, a Frenchman, Bernard Montessier. He's, very, he's a very unusual character, a kind of mystic of the sea. He's not really bothered about winning, he just loves sailing and is fulfilled by being out in the ocean, putting himself against it. <coughs> Although he's not yet back in Europe, he's well out in front and obviously going to win. And now the dark horse of the race, Donald Crowhurst, has reappeared. He has radioed his position as having rounded Cape Horn, which leaves him about equal second. Montessier is well out in front, then Tetley, more or less neck and neck with Crowhurst, and lastly Knox Johnson back home in England, but whose time is the slowest by far. When Crowhurst receives a cable from Haworth and learns all this news, he has some thinking to do. He reflects on the fact that he is going to come in second or third. This might be more publicity than he wants. If he equals if he ends up amongst the top finishers, people will be interested in his achievement, then the log of his imaginary circumnavigation will really have to stand up to scrutiny. <clears throat> he decides to take his time heading home because third place would be less high profile. He sails back towards England at a leisurely pace, keeping in radio contact as he goes. Sometimes in life, it seems as if the fates are against us. When Crowhurst loiters in the, well, Crowhurst loiters in the Atlantic, there are other forces at play. When Crowhurst next makes contact with England, he hears dramatic news. Montessier has decided not to return to Europe. His love of sailing is so deep that he doesn't care about the Golden Globe race and prize money or fame. His enjoyment of single-handedly sailing around the world is so great that he decides to set out on another circuit. Hallworth is naturally gleeful, but Crowhurst, though having to appear jubilant, is far from delighted. This development leaves him in second place. His only solace is that he is not first. If he were to win, he would be the center of attention and the records of his journey would be keenly inspected. That wasn't what he had set out to do. He just wanted to come in somewhere down the field to gain a little publicity so that he could avoid bankruptcy and keep his kids at school. He sails anxiously on towards England, brooding on what to do. It seems that Nigel Tetley, the English naval officer who is now about equal first with Crowhurst, has also been doing some reflections. He has been heading for home, knowing that, was, that there was no way he could beat Montessier, but thinking he was assured of second place, being well ahead of Knox Johnson time, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this weekend sailor, Donald Crowhurst, has appeared. 
When Montesquieu sails out of the race, he and Crowhurst are neck and neck for the first prize. His naval pride is at stake, and he determines to do his best to ensure that he comes in first. Urged on by his supporters, he presses on at first, he presses on as fast as he possibly can. He keeps pushing his boat to its limits to beat Crowhurst, even when he runs into a storm near the Azores. As a result, on May 2nd, 1969, Nigel Tetley is winched out of the Atlantic into a helicopter. The remains of his boat are little more than driftwood, and he is out of the race. This leads Donald Crowhurst sailing back to Teagmouth to a hero's welcome. A naval minesweeper will escort him into port, past a banner reading, Teagmouth welcomes Crowhurst, with media helicopters overhead. As he lands, he will be met by the chairman of Teagmouth Council to receive a formal welcome. The Sunday Times will provide a car to drive him to London for a press conference, reception, and banquet. He will be a guest of honor seated next to Sir Francis Chichester. The two of them will be able to swap their experiences of going around Cape Horn. Crowhurst's heart sinks. He is still keeping his two logs. He's been sailing with nowhere to go, and he's been on his own for so long. He calls his wife on the radio and asks, Are you all right at home? Are you sure you can cope with all the difficulties? His proud wife reassures him that she is coping and that he need not think of pulling out of the race on her account. What is he to do? He can't go back to England and sail into Tigmouth with the cheering crowds and reception committees and the media. He can't go to London to talk to Sir Francis Chichester about a trip around Cape Horn. But what other alternatives does he have? There's the business and his wife, children, Hallworth, all these people. Whichever of his legs, logs he reads places him in the same impossible position. Under the weight of this intolerable situation, Donald Crowhurst begins to disintegrate. He is keeping a diary, and at this point he starts to record what he believes are new truths. The tone of the diary keeps tracking between depression and elated understandings about Einstein, God, and the nature of the universe. Out of these increasingly wild swings, Crowhurst comes to believe that the truth of his voyage is that he has been playing a game of chess. His opponent in the game has been God, or perhaps the devil, and now his position is desperate. In fact, there doesn't seem to be any way out. It's time to resign the game. Ten days pass with no further communication from Crowhurst. On July 11, 1969, nearly eight and a half months after its departure, Tigmoth Electron is found by a British freighter still heading towards England, but Donald Crowhurst is no longer on board. There is no sign of him anywhere. Any comments? He never existed in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> and the race didn't either. And the race didn't either. <laughs> right. So, does this relate to free will? I mean, he was making choices. Choices didn't necessarily work out the way he thought they were going to work out. And... He finally made a choice which I think most of us would find very difficult to make. The interesting thing is that he left the boat, but he left the boat intact. He left both logs, he left a diary, and he left films of himself. <coughs> Why would he do that? Depression. Meaning? He Was, um, why wasn't he concerned about what people would see? Well, I mean, that's a whole dialogue about the circumstances surrounding suicide and, you know, the effects of it and everything else. It's very difficult to understand. So is suicide an act of free will? In some cases, I would say so. Wrong deal, um, Yeah, I mean, he had, I mean, he had choices. And, and he chose one of those options. Uh, I, I mean, all the choices were terrible choices, 
but there's still a free will in choosing whichever choice you want to take. Okay. But, yes, but again, um, the question is the state of mind, too. I mean, if, if, if that isolation and guilt drove him into a psychotic state, then, if, then are his choices free will or are they just a form of insanity? Um, it's, well, I think a lot of people would say that, that, you know, that's the way we all live our lives, in the state of insanity. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> I, I, I that. What happened to his family? Well, I mean, you can, you can go do research on him, yeah. you know. Well, it's, 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 his life is documented. I didn't do a lot of research on his family, but I, I verified the story. So much true. for his family. All of a sudden, you know, I'm out of here, like, you know, I'm curious to see what happened to his family. Yeah, he kept a diary describing what he was experiencing, along with two logs, all of which he left for posterity. Yeah. You know, it seems like we're talking about integrity here. And how do you mean? Integrity meaning our experience of our own um, motivations and actions. I mean, ultimately, we're left with that to live with with ourselves. I mean, it's not really either bad or good. It just is what it is. And his integrity was, in fact, sort of intact there. <clears throat> Possibly. I mean, he had an encounter with his own integrity. Uh-huh. And, and he decided to go with his integrity. Right. He had an encounter with himself. Exactly. Good for him. Well, how much, that, that could be a lack of integrity. And he, he could have been like, he killed himself at, to, to escape all the shaming, but he left his family. I mean, I'm sure his family would prefer that even with the shame that he was alive. So it might even they don't get active cowardice rather than but we, we really don't know that. I, I can tell you that, that if he had been really aware, he could have come back and told the story and made a fortune on the movie yeah. and the book. Yeah. <laughs> and his financial problems would have disappeared. You know, I, I just feel so ugly and dirty listening to that story. I mean, his whole life is deception, selfish uh, lies, I mean, he's just like negative, negative, negative. So, uh, to me, all those choices, he's going to probably get into like the most horrible situation, which he did. But I don't know, somehow, in my view, free will often comes with making choices to be better, to be, have a better outcome, to be loving, to be thoughtful. So mm -hmm. I don't really have sympathy or or I have compassion, of course, for his mm -hmm. horrible existence, but I mean, he was just like negative, 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 negative from start to go, so... We shouldn't be surprised with what happened, because if you look at what he was doing, it's not surprising that he ended up creating the situation for himself. And he's lucky he was able to just die quickly rather than <laughs> suffer uh, yeah. in a jail for life. Yeah. But uh, uh, can you explain what you're trying to? Yeah, I'm going to. Yeah. <laughs> because I have to take a shower. <laughs> what What I'd like to do is I'd like to show you something that you've probably all seen before. It's a, a, a picture. Are you familiar with this picture? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Someone tell me what they see. One thing they see. One person first. Somebody. I see two page, two profiles facing each other. Two faces. Mm -hmm. Okay. What does someone else see? Candlestick. Goblet. Or goblet. Yeah. Okay. That's like a chalice that the priests use in Catholic Church. Altar <laughs> Okay. The name tiger with the the salt coming slowly through the. Okay, so what does someone else see? I see a paper with some lines on it. Great. What does someone else see? 
How would you ideally describe this to someone? The trick question. <laughs> I would venture to say that the ideal description of it would be silence. Be what? Silence. Because each of us makes a choice about what the picture represents, and by the way, that's a reflection of free will. So what's that free will based on that helped you decide what was the first thing you saw here? Was it a choice between faces and goblets or lines and paper? Did you think about all those things and pick one of the three? But you chose. So where was the choice made? In your mind. Okay, so it was made in your mind. So your mind has a lot to do with choice. I'm sorry? But that choice, whatever the choice is, is based on your past experience. Exactly. So it's conditioned. So it's conditioned. So, does that tend to imply that free will is conditioned? So where's the free in conditioned? Is free about being conditioned? Or unconditioned? Well, you look at your experience and you have a choice of what you've experienced in the past, what might be outcomes or what serves your heart best. So I think even though you're conditioned, you still might have a choice. Okay. And what decisions, what are the decisions about what was best based on? Your concepts of what's good and what's bad? And where did they come from? Your mind. And how did they get into your mind? Experience. Experience. Based on the world we live in. Based on the individuals we come in contact with. Based on the types of things we encounter in the world. But there are instances of people going against the position and making a choice that way. Um, so, I mean, probably with some of that. Well, I mean, like, like classic, you know, story is Huckleberry Finn, slavery, this institution of slavery is considered an okay thing, and he went against that and did what he thought he knew was, as a society, it was an illegal and immoral act, but he did it anyway, because he had a different consequence. I understand, but you, the reality is that it's still based on his conditioning. Even a decision that we make which seems to be opposed to what we think is right is still based on the way we're conditioned. It's, it's not that we suddenly make a choice that says, I'm going to do something that is totally contrary to everything that I am, and I, I, there's no way of doing that because it's always based on who we are, even if it appears to be contradictory. How about a situation someone doesn't know whether to do A or B, and they say, okay, I'm going to flip a coin. A, I do, and B, I don't. The choice has been yielded to statistics. In a sense. But you made the, the choice. You made the outcome. You still made the choice of how you were going to arrive at the solution. So, so what's... What's the theme of this talk? <laughs> so, how do we deal with this? I mean, how do we deal with this from a spiritual perspective? Well, it seems like it comes back to the seer and knowing, you're, knowing you're, how you're conditioned and recognizing that your choices are conditioned um, and whatever freedom there is, is, is in that awareness. Right. It's in the awareness. So, we can sort of begin to view the world as having two aspects. We can view it as being conditioned, or we can view it as being absolute. Conditioned and absolute can simultaneously exist. So, in a meditative practice, 
what are we attempting to accomplish? We know what we're doing in the world. We're functioning in a conditioned environment where decisions are based based on the experiences that we have. In a meditative, meditative environment, we have the opportunity of experiencing the absolute, which is an unconditioned experience. But it's impossible to recognize an unconditioned experience if you can't appreciate what a conditioned experience is. Meditative praxis is attempting to have an unconditioned experience. You might say that if, for example, this is us in the world, moving around, having all sorts of experiences, and this is the unconditioned us, that we're trying to bring these two things together so that we can have this experience from a conditioned, enti a conditioned entity having an unconditioned experience. And I think that's what Ramana was talking about when he said what I read initially. Does that make sense? So what would be the, uh, if you spent a year in a cave meditating, I could imagine you could have a good outcome of becoming a loving, kind person, or you could come out being a crazy, evil, <laughs> selfish person. Yeah, and basically you're talking about conditioned experiences, and certainly you could have you can have any of those. Now, uh, there's just because an individual is capable of having an unconditioned experience doesn't necessarily mean that all of a sudden the conditioned ones are going to be positive. You know, our conditioned experiences are based on a history, and they're not easily changed. And as long as we abide or understand or believe that we are those unconditioned experiences, or at least the manifestation of those unconditioned experiences, we have no free will. And the interesting thing about it is in an unconditioned experience, free will is irrelevant. Because there's never a need for choice. Choice is a conditioned factor. An unconditioned world an unconditioned, a condition, unconditioned experience does not require choice because there's no me to choose. Do you suppose that's uh, perhaps why in retreat settings like everything is formulated and taken care of for you and you don't really have to like do anything except you know show up and follow the program and eat what's laid before you and so that your choice, your your necessity for choosing and involving free will or ego or whatever is reduced to stand down. Reduced distraction. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's part of it. The other part is why do we have processes that we go through in developing a spiritual practice and developing meditation? What are they designed for? They're designed to bring some quietness to the mental activities which basically form the foundations for the conditioned responses we have. Like all the ritual in Zen, how you enter, how you do it. I mean, once you have it down, once it becomes a pattern that you just follow, you know, it sort of takes the mind, it, you know, takes your mind away from it. Right. It's like, you know, going to Catholic church. Stand up, sit down, say this, say that. You know, it becomes a ritual that you just yeah, and the unfortunate part is that it can go two ways. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in one sense, if you really become involved with the ritual, then what it does is, is it takes you to a very good place repeatedly. If you don't ever become involved in it, then what happens is you just mentally wander off and do whatever your mind's going to do while it's going on, and you don't pay any attention to the whole process. You know, <coughs> the ritual isn't there to be understood. It's to produce specific mental states that are important to us in our practice. Yes? It's my understanding that what you're talking about is the Western sense of progress versus the Eastern sense of irrelevance. Progress is irrelevant. I mean, in Western thought, there's a beginning, middle, and end. There's progress from, you know, working towards goals, and Eastern thought is just being, and it's all the same. 
Yeah, I think the problem is... Your whole discussion here is a Western concept of meditation, which the Eastern thought thinkers might think is bullshit. Well, I don't have a problem with conditioning. I don't have a problem with that being part of my life. I think the difficulty is we tend to get stuck in a conditioned view and never recognize that there is a possibility of an unconditioned view. We don't even acknowledge it in our culture frequently. And I'm just suggesting that it can be useful to recognize exactly what drives our lives and that there are aspects of it that we can explore, the unconditioned aspect. And that's what spiritual practice is generally about, looking into that unconditioned aspect. The unconditioned is associated with absolute. Absolute means no change. Condition means change. If you look at the scientific history I gave, it's gone through change, and it reflects change. You know one of the greatest mysteries to science right now? Nobody can explain what time is. We all experience it, but nobody knows what it is. There is no scientific scientific way of describing it other other than saying that it's a reflection of entropy. Things continually moving to a lower energy state. That's not very meaningful to me when I relate it to my day-to-day experiences. When Newton did this wonderful formulation of these equations, time was irrelevant because the equations work going back and forward just as well. They're both they're valid in both directions. Speaking of time. <laughs> Yeah, I have one thing I'll read to you. Every kind of path except self-inquiry presupposes the retention of the mind as the instrument for following it and cannot be followed without the mind. The ego may take different and more subtle forms at different stages of one's practice, but it is never destroyed. The attempt to destroy the ego or the mind by methods other than self-inquiry is like a thief turning policeman to catch the thief that it is itself. Self-inquiry alone can reveal the truth that neither the ego nor the mind really exists, enable one to realize the pure, undifferentiated being of the self or absolute. Yeah, I'm talking about uh, a, a yeah. Generally, all forms of meditation are self-inquiry. Uh, Ramana did one called uh, the "Who Am I?" asking, and that's an exploration of that particular question. Well, thank you, Benjamin. Thank you. I always enjoy it. Always remember that you know I'm just giving you a bunch of words. Take out of it what's useful and let go of what isn't. Okay, so um, our speaker next week, uh, June 12th, is Tom Moon. Tom has been a practitioner of of Pasana meditation for 15 years, and his spiritual home is Spirit Rock. He's a psychologist in San Francisco, working primarily with Gainan. His chief commitment is in exploring the interface between Buddhist practice and psychotherapy. He'll be there next week. before we go into other announcements, I just want to just remind you of Donna, which is the poly word for um, giving, generosity. And Donna is what helps to pay for our speakers, for our rent, for the newsletters, for the Larkin Street dinners, all mailers that we do as well, for, especially for the prison prisoner program. And the suggested donation is anywhere between $7 and $10, so anything you can give is greatly appreciated. Um, who's our host today, Cass? Yes, um, I chose to be host today. <laughs> I think you chose to be host. I think you wanted to be I was on the schedule. Um, there are um, some treats. They're all vegan. Eat, don't eat. So here. Um, and there's hot water for tea. Um, if you... Um, 
if you have tea, please put your cup in the sink and we'll, we now have a dishwasher, so we can do um, You don't have to wash them by hand. Um, let's see, I'll be coming around with the Donegal and um, there is a sign-up sheet on the credenza over uh, along that wall uh, for people who'd like to be added to the mailing uh, list. Um, around 12.30, some people gather at the front door and go to lunch. Um, every, anybody is welcome to join that group. Oh, I might just, I'm also the coordinator of hosts, so we do have a couple of openings. So if um, anybody feels a, a willingness to um, kind of give back to the Samba, it's a relatively easy way to uh, participate and do something of service. Um, to keep the organization going. Um, you could talk to me uh, about what's involved. It's basically a once every two months. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Kat. Any other announcements? Okay, Tom. There are uh, free books out here on the table. <coughs> Dharma, one and two anthologies of writings of various gay networkers. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Let's go ahead and start with the presentation. By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the causes of happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the causes of sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow, and may all live in equanimity, without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you for today. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please Subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.